So just where does the Old Testament end and the New Testament begin? Well, if you said between the Bible books of Malachi and Matthew, you missed it. Knowing exactly where and specifically when the Old Covenant ends and the New Covenant begins is essential, not only for understanding your Bible, but also for the success of your Christian life. And you'll find out why next on Daily in Christ. Welcome once again. I'm Mark Van Oos. So glad to have you tuned in to the uh, broadcast, the podcast known as Daily in Christ. And in this age, we have the unprecedented opportunity to reach out to the world. And we're so grateful for that opportunity. And we do hear from different points around the world, people that uh, listen to the podcast and uh, write to say that it's of a benefit in their lives. And if it's been a blessing for you, I encourage you to stop by the website, dailyinchrist.org. There's an area there where you can uh, send in a note and let us know. We appreciate it. Please pray for us. It is a faith-based ministry, and we really depend on the prayers of the Lord's people. Well, we're back in the book of Hebrews in our series, Hebrews, the Glory of the New Covenant. Last time we were in Hebrews chapter 9, the first part, reading verses 1 through 15, and going through those verses. And in that last podcast, by way of review, uh, we saw that as long as that first tabernacle, the first part of the tabernacle, the law tabernacle was still standing, then law with the animal sacrifices by imperfect sinful men actually obstructed and hid the way into the holiest of all. We could not see the way into the intimate presence of the Father. That's a very key point. Now, what does that have to do with us today? Well, a law mentality or my doing for God actually keeps me or you right now from seeing what should be manifest or obvious that Jesus is indeed the way into the holiest of all. As long as we look at ourselves and our performance for God, law, we are blind and deaf to what should be obvious, the fact that Jesus is in fact the only way into the holiest of all. I say that twice because it's so important. It should be very clear. Jesus made the statement in John 14, 6 to his disciples when they asked him, how can we know the way to the Father? And Jesus simply declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That should be clear. When Jesus says, for instance, in the Gospel of John chapter 11 at Lazarus's tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. And yet we can't see it. We have difficulty. Something is blocking the way. And it's our own righteousness. It's our own performance for God, which is actually law. But it says there in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, that Jesus came indeed as high priest of the good things to come. And remember, a priest is one who brings that connection between God and man by offering sacrifices and uh, giving gifts. Jesus himself was sacrificed with his own precious blood. And Jesus, our great high priest, accomplished all. He entered the perfect tabernacle in heaven. He did it with nothing less than his own perfect blood. He entered the most holy place. And that perfect son, that 
perfect high priest with a perfect sacrifice of his perfect blood and perfect life? Well, he accomplished all perfectly once for all. And the result of that is that it has cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And remember what we said about dead works. Dead works are works that we do without God. God himself is the source of life. And when we do something without God, we're doing something without life. And when you're doing something without life, you are involved with death. That's dead works. Well, today on Daily in Christ, we'll look at the second half of Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be talking about testaments, wills and testaments, what they are and what they have to do with Jesus and what they have to do with you and me. We'll talk about the great divide of the Bible and time itself, where the old which left us in sin, defeat, and incompleteness, distance from God and condemnation, gives way to the new, the new covenant, leading to victory, completeness, closeness with God, and God's blessing. With that in mind, let's pick it up there in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 16. And as we do, let's turn to the Lord of the Scripture in prayer. Father, once again, we have this incredible privilege as the body of Christ to be gathered around your word. Thank you so much for the Holy Scripture, the Holy Bible. And Lord, these are but words on a page to us unless you by the Holy Spirit enlighten the Scripture, that you will open it up to our understanding. Lord, we refuse to rely upon our human understanding, which is flesh, we instead, right now, depend upon the Holy Spirit who inspired these words. Open up the text to us. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 16. If you have your Bible handy, that would be extremely helpful because, well, it just makes a big difference when you can see it for yourself. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Verse 16 begins with, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant, speaking of the covenant of law, was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to, the pe to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission." Well, as we dig into this passage, there are a few things that stand out. First, in the beginning, there's actually talk that sounds like will talk, last will and testimony uh, kind of talk. There's talk about the testator, there's talk about death, and there's talk about blood and the effect it has upon us and our sins. We see in these verses what is needed to make things right between us and God and bring us into the new covenant. What is it 
that actually does that. That's important. It's important that relationship with God is restored and made whole. Well, we see that that which is needed to make things right between us and God and bring us into the new covenant is the death of the testator, Jesus Christ. Death is necessary. Let's talk a little bit about testaments and wills. Do you have a will? (laughs) What is a will? Well, a last will and testament is your wishes that you would like to have carried out in terms of your assets, whatever kind of earthly goods you have, and how they will be distributed to those that you would like to bequeath those items. The last will and testament also talks about um, your intentions concerning your minor children. And I say this parenthetically, if you don't have a will, a last will and testament, the state has one, and you definitely don't want to stick your uh, loved ones with that at your passing. So when the Bible here in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 22, talks about a testament or a will, the Greek word for a testament means to set out in order, to dispose in a certain order, a testament or a covenant. And it means, it always meant in classic Greek, the disposition which a person makes of his property in prospect of death, i.e. his testament, and used either in the singular or the plural. That's key. So this word for testament that's uh, translated here in Hebrews chapter 9 refers to, if you will, the last will and testament. And just like the way these things are conducted today, there is a testator. That is the person who makes the last will and testament. Okay, so what's all the big deal about this as far as our spiritual lives, as far as what's being communicated to us by God here in Hebrews chapter 9. Well, there are two big testaments or covenants in the Bible. There is the Old Testament or covenant, which is the testament or covenant of law. And that covenant is centered on me and my so-called righteousness, That's key to understanding. A lot of people think that the law was brought to somehow make us holy, to somehow make us righteous people. It does not do that. The law and the covenant of law is God confronting sinful man who thinks he's God and says, okay, you think you're God? Here's the list. Go to it. And of course, we're not God. We're not the creator. We're the creature. And so the result is failure, failure, failure. And finally, it lifts our eyes beyond ourselves to God himself and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament, the covenant of law, was also a ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 says that. And in fact, the law provokes even more sinning. That's what Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25 are all about. Also, the um, law is a ministry of condemnation, 2 Corinthians 3.9. So that's the old covenant of law. The new covenant or New Testament is the testament of grace. And it's centered on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Question, 
the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is centered, the Law Covenant is centered on me and my so-called righteousness. The New Testament, the, the New Covenant is a covenant of grace centered on Jesus and his righteousness. Which one is better? <laughs> well, duh. Obviously, the New Testament of grace is infinitely better, as infinitely superior as the Lord Jesus Christ is to little old me. Now, the New Testament is also a ministry of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.8. And, of course, the Spirit is God himself. The New Testament is also a ministry of righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. And it brings glory, life, and God's favor and grace. That's what the New Testament brings. It also deals with our problem of sins. And we'll talk about that coming up in uh, a little bit later in this podcast. Now, remember what we said about the last will and testaments? Under law, if there is a succeeding last will and testament, that particular one always supersedes and replaces any prior testament. For instance, if I had a law, if I had a will that was drawn up uh, by an attorney in an attorney's office, uh, with official attorney's papers and so forth, and it was witnessed by the attorney and signed by me, that would be a duly um, recognized legal will. Now, if I happen to write another will on a napkin in a restaurant that was witnessed by a friend, do you know that that will on the napkin supersedes the existing will? That's the nature of testaments. They always, succeeding ones, always replace it. The new covenant of grace totally and completely replaces the old covenant of law. Most Christians have law and grace mixed together. They somehow think that, yes, we're in the new covenant of grace, but somehow there is somehow the old testament of law. Well, biblically, nothing could be further from the truth. There are the two covenants, and Jesus fulfilled the first through the perfect righteousness by uniting us together with him in his death and resurrection, and by virtue of his perfect death and dying with him, we now rise to have risen together with him in newness of life. That's what Romans chapter 6 is all about. Moving on in the theme here in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 22, Blood is mentioned quite a bit. And blood, people say, well, what's the big deal about blood? Well, what happens when a person bleeds? Well, if they keep bleeding, there's life in the blood, and the life leads, leaves the person, and that person dies. The blood speaks of the necessary death of the testator. Now, getting back to the last will and testament, my last will and testament, even a succeeding one on a napkin, does not go into effect until I die. That is common sense, right? So the New Testament comes into effect. And again, we get back to the teaser question that I had at the beginning of this podcast. Where in the Bible does the Old Covenant or the Old Testament end and the New Testament begins? Well, it does not begin between the book of Malachi and the book and the Gospel of Matthew. It does not begin with Jesus' 
conception or his birth or his growing up or even at the Last Supper. In fact, it didn't even go into effect when he was nailed to the cross. It went into effect. The new covenant went into effect when Jesus breathed his last and died. That's key. He said, it is finished. And he thirsted and he died. At the instant that the Lord Jesus Christ died, all was fulfilled with the old covenant of law, taking it away. As it says in Romans chapter 10, Jesus is the end of the law for all who believe. And that instituted the beginning of the New Testament, the new covenant. That's why, you know, sometimes I'll speak about this and I'll tell people, okay, I don't normally recommend that you tear things out of your Bible, but this is a good case. That page that's between the book of Malachi and the gospel of Matthew that says New Testament, go ahead and rip that out because, and maybe put it in and Uh, John chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus says, it is finished. The point is that the blood speaks of the necessary death of the testator. The covenants are dedicated with blood, as it says there in this passage, even under the covenant of law. Now, under the law covenant, under the old covenant, let me ask you, was the blood that was offered under the covenant of law the blood of the priest? No, it was another's blood. That's key. It was the blood of bulls and goats. So the priest, and they offered a lot of blood, never, ever, ever offered their own blood, even a little pinprick, because the covenant of law was a foreshadowing of what would happen under the new and that is there would be someone else who would offer his blood now in exodus chapter 24 verses 7 through 8 it says speaking of moses himself then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and they said all that the lord has said we will do and be obedient which by the way is one of the biggest lies in the bible they didn't carry that out remember what happened within 40 days they were um, worshiping a golden calf and saying these were the gods who delivered them from egypt Continuing in Exodus 24, verse 8, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Now, again, it was the blood of calves and goats. And again, someone else had to die under the law. And again, this pointed out the truth and the reality that someone else would have to die under the new covenant and that someone else, not you, not me, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The death of calves and goats pointed to the death needed to bring full purification, full remission of sins and inauguration of the new covenant. And it says that it is not We need to understand that it is not the blood itself that necessarily does anything. It purifies, and that's true. But the blood was necessary for the copies under the the covenant of law of the things that are in the heavens. The copies, not the realities. The copies had to be purified. 
but they were still mere copies, not the real thing. And again, death was necessary. Why is death necessary? Well, over in Exodus chapter 18, it says twice, the soul that sins shall die. Somebody had to die for your sins. Somebody had to die for my sins. That's why the person who dies in their sin without saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is in an awful place. Later on in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 9, here's what it says. Verse 27, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. You either die with Christ, and he took all the judgment because he died for you, or you die alone. And what a horrible, dreadful thing it is to face the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Okay, when does that will go into effect again? It goes into effect with the death of the testator. And Hebrews 9.22 says this, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The law stipulated, and again, the law was a shadow of the reality which was coming through Christ. The law stipulated that all things needed to be purified with the blood. Uh, the priest would sprinkle the blood on the book. He would sprinkle it on the um, articles of worship. He would sprinkle it on the people. All of that blood was testifying about something that was coming yet under the new covenant. Under the old covenant of law, the blood did not remove sins. It was a covering of sins. Now understand, God was being merciful in that particular economy. But with the reality of Christ, we don't need a covering of sins anymore. It is, with the perfect blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the remission of sins. Again, in Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. What is remission? The Greek word literally means the bearing away of sins, the complete removal, not just a covering. You know what it says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so have you separated us from our sins. That's the difference, and there's so many differences in the book of Hebrews that the Lord Jesus Christ makes. I want to point out that blood is needed for the remission of sins. Not going to church, not reading your Bible, not praying, all those things are wonderful and helpful, but they don't mean anything when it comes to the remission of sins. You don't need another priest. Jesus is your high priest. We do not need confession. Confession does not remove sins. Blood removes the sins. Under the old covenant, under the covenant of law, when someone would bring their lamb as their sacrifice, the priest did not inspect the penitent, the sinner. The priest inspected the lamb to make sure that the lamb was spotless. Why did the priest do that? Because the blood of the lamb was necessary. And again, under the, the covenant of law, it was the blood of an animal, the blood of another. 
Under the New Testament, the New Covenant, we see so much more under the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. The complete remission, bearing away of sins, gone forever. And we see purification that occurs as well. Just a few more points in this particular passage in Hebrews chapter 9. And um, it says in verse 23 that just as the earthly things were purified with blood, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Is there anything at all that's better, more powerful than Jesus Christ and his blood? Well, of course not. Why in the world do we ever harbor the thought, gosh, I... I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think, boy, if I could just overcome this sin. Boy, if I would just give more faithfully. Boy, if I could just show up to church more. All of this stuff. It's an insult to entertain before a holy God the notion that somehow Jesus was not enough. That somehow his blood was not enough. Well, I'm going to tell you what God the Father thinks. God the Father says that the blood of Jesus Christ was an infinite overpayment for your sins. Jesus appeared in the presence of God for us. And then it says in verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. See, under that old covenant, under the covenant of law, The priests, who were themselves sinners, were offering the sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats and calves. And that couldn't cleanse sins. That couldn't provide us with the necessary remission and bearing away of sins. It was an imperfect sacrifice with imperfect priests. And Therefore, you saw imperfect results. And whenever something is not done right, it needs to be done again and again and again and again. And so over and over and over and over and over and over again under the covenant of law, sacrifice after sacrifice, not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. Hey, in your own Christian life, do you ever, are you ever dogged with the thought of not enough? I'm not enough. I didn't do enough. I should have done it this way. Um, All of this thinking, this not enough thinking, that's your clue that your mind is operating under the old covenant of law and not under the reality and totality of the new covenant of grace. And this is where we grow up in the Christian life, where we understand what the Word of God says about these things, and we stop disagreeing with God and trumping God's thinking with our own fleshly thinking, and we warmly embrace by faith the totality and the reality of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is mind renewal that's necessary. And as we continue to walk by faith, saying, Lord, I thank you that Jesus is more than enough for me, that I stand perfectly clean and pure and washed before you. 
the Apostle Paul confronted the sinning, messed up Corinthian church. And he said this. He said, but you, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you were washed. Now, what happens with a washed person? That person's clean, right? It says, and that's in the perfect tense of the Greek, by the way, you were washed, done completely, perfectly, clean. You are clean and always clean. You say, well, what about if I sin again? Is your sin stronger than the blood of Jesus Christ? No. You don't have to offer another sacrifice. You don't have to pray, read your Bible, tithe, evangelize. No, 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 no. Jesus and what he did, his perfect blood is more than enough. You are clean. Then he continues in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, you were, again in the perfect tense, justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means that we have received the same just and righteous standing that the Lord Jesus Christ has before God the Father. Why? Because as it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it says that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes. So, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, we have been, we were justified. And then it says this, but you were sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be made holy, set apart for God. We are not sanctified by anything that we do. Religion teaches that, not the Bible. Religion has cleverly co-opted and taken hostage and payloaded the biblical term of sanctification to mean something that we do. Ah, that is so wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. You study the Bible's use of the word sanctify or holy or sanctification, and it will become abundantly clear that in its context, it's referring to something that God does to us. God is the one who makes us holy. And as it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and in many other places, you were sanctified with a perfect sanctification. Now, if that's bothering you, you're going, I don't know about that, Mark. I encourage you to stop by our dailyinchrist.org website and download my series called Living in the Reality of Perfect Sanctification. It'll change your life. It's powerful stuff. What's the point that we're trying to make? Again, we're wrapping up here in um, Hebrews chapter 9. Incredible words. It says that, that Christ did it. He appeared with his own blood. Perfect sacrifice, not with a copy of the things in the heavenlies, but heaven itself. Now to appear, verse 24, in the presence of God for us. 25, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Speaking of Jesus, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But catch this. But now, 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 this is our now reality. Once, 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 at the end of the ages, he has appeared, past tense, to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. Dear friends, what could be more decisive? This theme about the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect life, perfect obedience, perfect love of the Father, his perfect suffering, his perfect blood, his perfect sacrifice, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection, his perfect ascension, his perfect reign from the Father's right hand, perfectly interceding for us. I can't say it enough. How in the world can you improve perfection? Please stop mixing law and grace. Please. So many Christians are horrible lawbreakers. They think they're under law and they think it's limited to the Big Ten. No, there isn't 10 commandments in the law. There are 600 plus. And the law itself, and it says this in Deuteronomy 27 and in Deuteronomy 28 and in James 2.9, it says that if you break one law once, you are guilty of all, and you are under 55 verses of curses found in Deuteronomy 28. What part of this don't we understand? To be under law is to be under the curse. But the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus became a curse. So, And it says in Galatians chapter 3 that we would be blessed. What could be clearer than this? People here not under law and they think we're not under anything. Oh, that's ridiculous. You are not just not under law. You are under grace. And remember, law is the center of law is you and your so-called righteousness. The center of grace is Jesus and his infinite righteousness. Which is better? Obviously, Jesus and his perfect righteousness. Remember what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Wrapping up this wonderful chapter, Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, um, but now, let me back up to verse 26, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Uh, that is, if Jesus had an old covenant law, covenant sacrifice, he didn't since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once, once, once to bear the sins of many, your sins, dear friend, your sins. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So, with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished, all the sin has been removed. We've been brought into 
holy relationship with God. We are no longer children of the darkness. We are children of God. We are no longer sinners. We are called saints because God has made us holy. We are clean. We are justified. As it says in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Why was this done? As it says in Ephesians 2.4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, And raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." For we are his workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship is poema. We get our word poem from it. We are his poem, his poetry, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let's pray. Father, As we bow together in prayer in this holy moment, we just stand in awe of you, Lord, awe of your love, such incredible love, such great love. As it says in Romans chapter 5, you demonstrate your love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And thank you, Lord, for, uh, Father, for such love that would send your one and only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and born fully man and as a man to accomplish all beautifully, perfectly, completely for us, to bear away our sins the remission of our sins by his precious blood to bring us into reconciliation through his death and life through uh, salvation, through his life. Dear Father, I pray that you would take this word and you would by your spirit continue just to shine the light nice and bright that we would be able to see the great wonder of such a great salvation. Lord, that all is well between us, between me and you, simply because all is well between you and Jesus. Thank you, Father, for such love. Thank you for such a wonderful son, our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.